Please turn with me in your Bibles to the fourth chapter, the prophecy of Zechariah in the Old Testament. Zechariah will be found toward the end of the Old Testament, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. We're going to be looking at Zechariah chapter 4, which amounts to the fifth night vision that Zechariah received as a prophet of God. I'd like to read for you the entirety of chapter 4. Zechariah 4, then, beginning at verse 1. Hear now God's word. And the angel that talked with me came again and waked me as a man that is wakened out of his sleep. And he said unto me, What seest thou? And I said, I have seen, and behold, a candle stand, all of gold, with its bowl upon the top of it, and its seven lamps thereon. There are seven pipes to each of the lamps, which are upon the top thereof, and two olive trees by it, one upon the right side of the bowl, and the other upon the left side thereof. And I answered and spake to the angel that talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? Then the angel that talked with me answered and said unto me, Knowest thou not what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. Then he answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of Jehovah unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith Jehovah of hosts. Who art thou, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel thou shalt become a plain, and he shall bring forth the top stone with shoutings of grace, grace unto it. Moreover, the word of Jehovah came unto me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also finish it. And thou shalt know that Jehovah of hosts has sent me unto you. For who hath despised the day of small things? For these seven shall rejoice and shall see the plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel. These are the eyes of Jehovah which run to and fro throughout the whole earth. Then answered I, and said unto him, What are these two olive trees upon the right side of the candlestand, and upon the left side thereof? And I answered the second time, and said unto him, What are these two olive branches, which by means of the two golden spouts empty the golden oil out of themselves? And he answered me and said, Knowest thou not what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. Then said he, These are the two anointed ones that stand by the Lord of the whole earth. And thus far the reading of God's word. Five years ago, today, on the very first Lord's Day of 1980, 15 people in two families assembled in the living room of the Andrus home for the very first worship service of Covenant Community Chapel at that time, now church. Not very impressive. When you realize that, of course, this was just one room of their home, and that home was just one home in one neighborhood out of the thousands of cities in this country, which is just itself a small portion of the whole world, I mean, not very impressive. Fifteen people sitting in a living room in some obscure place called Placentia, California. And you know, that one room wasn't even filled to capacity. Not very impressive, and hardly anyone took notice of that meeting. Indeed, there's no indication that anybody was too deeply impressed by that meeting. There wasn't any newspaper coverage. The Times didn't come. The Register ignored us. No calls from the White House to congratulate us, to wish us well, 
The governor's office didn't send any greetings. We didn't even have representatives of the Placentia City Council rushing over to some noteworthy happening that they knew they wanted to be part of. Not only did the world ignore us, pretty much the evangelical and reformed churches paid no attention. So insignificant was this. You know, even the host church for the chapel at that time didn't have anybody representing the church at our first meeting. I listened to the news and watched the TV later that day. There wasn't any coverage, any attention paid. No significant mention of any event at that time or place. Frankly, to tell people in the world that a new chapel had begun with 15 people in attendance, oh, you'd probably have gotten yawns and cynicism. Big deal. Given the hostility of the world and given the very little faith of most of the people in the Christian church today, it was very easy to despise the day of small beginnings. Now, on that particular day, I preached a sermon from Zechariah, the fourth chapter, a sermon which addressed this very problem of despising the day of small beginnings. And now, today, on the fifth anniversary of the beginning of that congregation, I'd like to repeat the same message taken from Zechariah 4, not merely as a reminder, in fact, the vast majority of you who are here were not there on that day, not just as a reminder, but as a renewed call to confidence, to hope, and to faithful methods in our congregation. I want to give you this morning a biblical challenge to not despise the day of small beginnings. And I'm very excited about this message, not just about the occasion of our anniversary, but about this passage of Scripture. I don't know if there's ever a time that I read Zechariah 4, understanding the historical context and the theological significance of it, that my heartbeat doesn't go up just a bit. I mean, you have to be stirred with excitement when you think about what Zechariah is here told in the fifth night vision that he relates to us. Let me help you understand it by giving you something of the background historically to what Zechariah is seeing. To really appreciate this, that is, if you want to do some homework after you hear what I tell you it means and, and, and deepen your understanding of it, go home and read Isaiah and Ezekiel. Isaiah was a prophet before the exile. What's the exile? Maybe I better go slow here. The exile is one of the major historical events of the Old Testament period. When you think about the Old Testament, we think of the creation. We think of man's fall into sin. We think of God cursing the earth at the time of Noah. We think of God calling out a people to himself in the family of Abraham. We think of Moses as the leader of God's people, taking them out of Egypt the Exodus. We think of the days of conquest in the land, the golden days of prosperity under David and Solomon. We think of the divided kingdom and then the judgment of God falls on the Israelites and they go into exile. It's a long story. I won't give you all the details, but that exile is a major, major problem in the psyche and the theology of the Israelites. What has God done? How is it possible that this could have happened to us? Isaiah prophesied of the exile. Ezekiel, a prophet in exile, prophesied as to what God would do about it. And then you must read Ezra and Nehemiah to see the history of that period, how God brings his people back out of exile and reestablishes them in the land, has them build the temple and then the walls of Jerusalem. And then finally we have the last three prophets of the Old Testament that you must know something about, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. 
And that much we can remember. There are 12 minor prophets. People tend to get them very confused. I have a problem with them myself. But those last three you can't forget because they're the prophets who are after the exile. They're the ones who come to the land and are prophesying to stir up the people to do God's bidding, specifically to finish the temple and to build the walls of Jerusalem. So if you want to do some homework, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Ezra, Nehemiah, and then Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. All of that, you see, if you understand that, is going to give you a richer understanding of Zechariah chapter 4. The prophets who lived before the exile of Israel scanned the horizon, and what they saw was nothing but destruction and the taking away of God's people. The crisis that was facing their nation required them to have watchmen, they said, warning of the threatening danger. And so Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Hosea, Joel and Amos all used the imagery of the watchman telling Israel, the day of destruction is coming upon you. From the time of Amos, a message of doom was presented to both the houses of Judah and Israel. Fire, Amos said, would devour. Fire would devour Jerusalem. And Samaria, its end had already come. In Hosea, the prophet says, like prey in the lion's teeth, the population will be torn up and carried away. Isaiah 5 says, the light has gone out in Israel. Isaiah 6, the land has been destroyed. Isaiah 8, the floodwaters are up to our necks. This is not a pleasant message. Israel is being told, not believing it, in its complacency, not understanding that the day of doom would come and God would show that that promised land was not an inalienable right. And so in the year 587, the temple and the city, Jerusalem, were plundered and were destroyed. You can read of that in 2 Kings 24 and 25. The privileged nation had now become rebellious, presumptuous, and judged. Isaiah said this way, he said, The tended vine of God has grown wild. In Isaiah 6, we read that the tree has been felled. Things had never been worse for the Jews, never. And the common feeling among those who were now taken away in chains into exile was that they were as good as dead. As Ezekiel 37 put it, they were like bones, dried up, and their hope was gone. Any reasonable ground of hope was completely gone. And then Ezekiel is given a message, a stirring message of resurrection. The dry bones will live. God will restore life. God will put his people back in the land. He will reunite the two kingdoms under a Davidic head, and he will set his sanctuary among them once and for all. Isaiah had said even before they went into captivity toward the end of his prophecy that the covenant God would one day blot out their transgressions for his own sake. That he was planning their return to Jerusalem that they might rebuild the temple. And Isaiah even gives the name of the pagan king who will allow this to take place. He says Cyrus will be God's anointed one. Cyrus will be God's shepherd to lead his people back into the land. And so God's people suddenly had been resurrected with a glorious future in the eyes of the prophets. Heaven and earth, Isaiah said, will witness the declaration, the Lord yet loves them. Now in the midst of this prophecy of destruction, exile, and then restoration to the land, the central, most important piece of the prophecies is the rebuilding of the temple. 
You see, the temple's importance in Israel was not simply for sacrificial ritual. We tend to think of the temple as just where people had to go to take care of their animal sacrifices. But the Lord promised that the temple would be a sanctuary, a holy house for his people, and he said that he would be their sanctuary even in exile. That begins to give you some indication of the importance of the temple stood for God's love for Israel and his presence in their midst. Psalm 132 said, The Lord has chosen Zion as his own resting place forever. And therefore, as Second Chronicles 30 put it, the sanctuary was sanctified forever. Psalm 78, The Lord chose Mount Zion, which he loves. He built his sanctuary like the heavens. God, where does God dwell? Theologically, you could say God dwells in the heavens. And yet, soteriologically, in terms of salvation, in terms of God's love, and God's involvement in the lives of the people, it could be said in Israel and nowhere else, God dwells in our midst. God dwells there upon his holy hill of Zion. Even though the highest heavens cannot contain him, the Lord deigned to call one particular hill by his own name, as Jeremiah reminds us in the seventh chapter. In fact, so significant was the temple that that's why the Israelites often felt they couldn't be overrun. We have the temple, they said. God will never allow the temple to be destroyed. But then the nations had been allowed to profane God's temple. Ezekiel 7 tells us of that, the treading down of God's holy place. And thus the honor of the Lord was bound up in the rebuilding of that house. The honor of the Lord and his covenant love for Israel were all symbolized by whether that house would be rebuilt. And that would be a witness to the nations. Ezekiel puts it this way, Then the nations will know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel when my sanctuary is in the midst of them forever. All the nations will know of God's covenant love when his house is erected again upon Mount Zion. Zechariah chapters 1 and 2 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceeding zealous for Jerusalem and Zion. The Lord will again choose you, Jerusalem. See, Ezekiel saw the close connection between the temple and the covenant. He knew that God's covenant would be restored when God's house was in the midst of his people. Haggai, the post-exilic prophet, assured the people in God's name, I am with you, says the Lord. Ezekiel saw the glory of the Lord returning to Jerusalem and that there would be a temple there to receive the glory. Where Jerusalem had become Ichabod, the glory has departed, it now would have a house to receive the Shekinah glory of God back again. You see, this is very exciting for the Israelites. They are not cast off forever. God has not remembered their sins unto eternity. He for his own namesake has redeemed them. He has called them back from captivity. He has reestablished them in the land. He is building up his house in their presence. You see, the rebuilding of the temple meant that God had renewed his promise to Israel. And that had great significance. Micah the prophet described a new temple. He said that would be higher than the hills into which all the nations will now flock to hear the transforming word of God and to bring peace to the world through it. The rebuilt temple meant the dawning of a messianic age for Isaiah, for Haggai, and for Malachi. All right, and so you see what Zechariah 4's context is. The prophets have said, God will judge you, but then he will call you back. 
and the symbol of that will be the rebuilding of the temple. And this all began to take place, if you read Ezra chapter 1, in the days of Cyrus the king, the emperor of Persia. Cyrus declared that the Lord, the God of heaven, had charged him to build a house in Jerusalem. And so the Jews were encouraged to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And there is one whose name is always fun to say because there are so many stops in it, Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was in the king's service in that day, probably in the first year of Cyrus' reign, when he gave the decree for the Jews to return and to build their house. Zerubbabel was the legal successor and the heir of Jeconiah's royal estate. He was a lineal descendant of David's son Nathan. And he was the one who led the first colony of captives back from the Babylonian captivity, led them as the head of the tribe of Judah, and he was accompanied by Joshua the high priest. And now we finally can come to Zechariah 4. Zerubbabel, the civil leader, and Joshua the high priest have brought the people back. And the first thing they did upon returning to Jerusalem was to set up the altar on the original site where the altar had been. And they restored the daily sacrifice. They were aided by a grant of material and money, and then they laid the foundation of the temple in the second month of the second year of their return, and there was a great ceremony described for us in Ezra chapter 3. And so things are going great, but then amazingly progress stops. It comes to a dead stop. Nothing happens for 16 years. Having begun with all this enthusiasm and joy, the Israelites paid attention to the building of their own houses and starting their own culture. Indeed, a mongrel people that had inhabited the land of uh, Palestine during the exile presented a great hindrance to them, constantly getting in the way of them, challenging them, attacking them, writing letters to the emperor against them, doing anything they could to stop the work. And for 16 years it was stopped while the people, as Haggai says, with great sarcasm in chapter 1 of his prophecy, built for themselves beautiful homes in the suburbs. Haggai is a tremendous prophet. You need to read it. Haggai prophesies that the people need to stop paying attention to their own houses and rebuild the house of God. Haggai begins his uh, prophecy in the year 520, 24 days later, we read, they began the work again. In the seventh month of the year 520, he gave a second appeal. In the eighth month, Zechariah began to prophesy. In the ninth month, Haggai's final words were given. And then in the eleventh month of that year, Zechariah's prophecy, which we now come to, was finally heard. This is the fifth night vision Zechariah received. And it's a vision that God will supply through his spirit all that is necessary to accomplish the task of finishing the rebuilding of the temple. But you see, Zechariah also tells us that this looks beyond the historical occasion of Ezra and Nehemiah, looks beyond Zerubbabel and Joshua to the great day of the branch, the Messiah of Israel, who will build his international house, and none shall stop him. Let's take a look at the prophecy so we'll understand that. In verse 1 of chapter 4, Zechariah tells us that he was wakened out of sleep as the angel of the Lord came to him with a vision, an unveiling of the way things really are. Zechariah is privileged in a way that none of us enjoy today 
to see something that God directly lays out for him, a drama, if you will, a tabloid that will give him insight to the way things really are. He's taken behind the scenes. He's allowed to see things which the normal human eye cannot. And what he's given is a symbolic vision, as verses 2 and 3 put it. He said unto me, What seest thou? I said, I have seen a candle stand, all of gold, with its bowl upon the top of it, and seven lamps thereon, and seven pipes to each of the lamps which are upon the top thereof, and two olive trees by it, one on the right side and the other on the left. What does this mean? Zechariah is given a privilege to see the candle stand of the Lord that belongs in the temple. The temple's not built, but he sees it as though it were. But it's a glorious candle stand, more glorious than anything the Israelites will ever see in their history. It's a candle stand that has seven places for light. And it's not ordinary wax candles here. These are oil lamps. And so there's a great bowl upon the top of it. And each of these seven lights has seven sources of oil to it. It would create almost an inferno because of the uh, great amount of fuel for each one of them. And is there any worry that there will be enough oil for the lamp? No. There's a living source of oil as two olive trees stand right by the candle stand pouring in their golden oil into the bowl thereof. Now what does all this mean? What's the significance of this vision? Well, olive oil was used for anointing in the Old Testament. Olive oil was a symbol of the Holy Spirit Olive oil is used here to indicate the abundance then of the Holy Spirit of God lighting the lamp of the temple which will be a light to the world. The bowl stands there with an automatic supply of oil with seven tubes to each one of the lamps to show the abundance of the free supply an unrestrained flow of the Holy Spirit for the people of God to be a light to the world. A living source of oil, Zechariah is told. Two olive trees. You don't press out the olives now to get the oil. The trees themselves, as living fountains, will give the oil here. And so Zechariah has shown that God will supply a constant, full, and living supply of the Holy Spirit so that His people can effectively be lights to the world. How can they be when the temple is still in ruins, however? Verses 4 and 5 tell us, this symbolic vision has great import. I answered and spake to the angel, saying, What are these, my Lord? Then the angel that talked with me answered and said to him, Don't you know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. Then he answered and he said, This is a message for Zerubbabel, and this is a message for you, Zechariah. The vision has deep import and significance, and you're not to miss it. Zerubbabel in verses 6 and 7 is assured that God's house will be rebuilt, and success will come from divine activity, not by might and not by power, but by that free and full supply of the Holy Spirit. And all haughty opposition is challenged, and there will be rejoicing when the capstone of the temple is finally brought and put it in its place. Zechariah 4.6 is the heart of it. Not by might nor my power, but by my spirit, saith Jehovah of hosts. Of course, if you look only at your normal, your garden variety, your human mundane resources, 
there's great question as to whether this temple will ever be rebuilt. You have opposition from without, opposition from within. Satan surely doesn't want to see this accomplished. The people are apathetic. Nobody takes it seriously. But you see, it won't come through a mighty, mighty army. It won't come through an army of workers. It won't come through might or power, but rather by God's own Holy Spirit. By my Spirit. That Spirit that worked in creation to make the heavens and the earth as they were. That Spirit that opened up the Red Sea that the Israelites could go through. That Spirit that brought Ezekiel's vision of a dead people now resurrected to life. My Spirit will see to it that the work is completed. You have my assurance. Nothing around you may assure you, but you know that I speak this word of comfort and confidence. Not by might, not by power, but by my Spirit. So then... In verse 7 says, Who art thou, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? Zerubbabel can say to that mountain of opposition, Be removed, and it's gone. Not by might, not by power, but by the Spirit of God, nothing will stop Zerubbabel now. Nothing will get in the way of his completing God's ordained task. And so Zerubbabel can say, O mountain, become a plain before him, and it will be done. And then in verse 7, we go on to read, He shall bring forth the top stone with shoutings of grace, grace unto it. The day will be seen when Zerubbabel will drag the last stone of the temple and put it in place, and the people will sing grace to that stone as the temple of God is completed. That day will come. It will be a trophy of God's grace when Zerubbabel will do that. And verse 9 gives the guarantee that this will happen. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also finish it. And thou shalt know that Jehovah of hosts has sent me unto you. For who hath despised the day of small things? For these seven shall rejoice and shall see the plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel. The plummet, the plumb line, will be in his hand because he will have finished the work. And then the seven eyes of God, a very mysterious symbol about the all-seeing God, those eyes which roam to and fro throughout the earth, as the Bible tells us, they shall rejoice when Zerubbabel has the plumb line in his hand, and the temple will be complete. Oh, but there were realists in that day. You see, we're getting all emotional. We're getting all excited. We're getting carried away religiously here. The realists were there to say, now wait a minute, though. Where will all the supplies come from? Where will the money come? Where are you going to get the workers for this? How are you going to stop that opposition out there? This is not going to be done. Come on. It's nice to get enthusiastic. Sunday may be a time for getting yourself worked up. But you see, in the day-to-day -day work of building this temple, we know it's not going to get done. There were cynics there. People who made fun. They said, it's been 16 years. We've gotten by all right. And so there was hostility in the world and men of little faith among them who despised the day of small things. We've got here an altar and a foundation. Big deal. Nothing else is going to happen. But the all-seeing God said, Oh yes, I'll see the plumb line in Zerubbabel's hand. You will watch Zerubbabel drag the last stone up and put it in the capstone place. It will be done. Don't despise the day of small things. All right, let's put this all in context then. For Zechariah's vision to his own day, we see that the rebuilding of the temple will take place. God will have an abundant supply of oil to light the candlestand of the temple. 
The rebuilding will be accomplished by the power of God's Spirit. And there's assurance that despite all kinds of opposition, the rebuilding will not be stopped. It will be completed. Well, that's very encouraging for Zechariah's day. What does that say to us, though? I mean, we're not rebuilding the temple of God, or so we might think. How does this speak to us? Well, look at the very end of Zechariah chapter 4. It's amazing. Because Zechariah now wonders, what about these two olive trees that are standing next to the candle stand? And what he's told is that these are the two anointed ones that stand before the Lord of the whole earth. The two anointed ones, Zerubbabel and Joshua, the king, if you will, the civil leader, and the high priest. The two anointed ones stand in the place of the olive trees. And then you have to look at Zechariah chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, where Zechariah, speaking to Joshua, the high priest, says, Even he shall build the temple of Jehovah. Let me read verse 12 first. Speak unto him, saying, Thus saith Jehovah of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, he shall grow up out of his place and shall build the temple of Jehovah. Even he shall build the temple of Jehovah, and he shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule upon his throne, and he shall be a priest upon his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. The day is coming, you see, when one who is called the branch will build the temple of God, one who combines the kingly office and the priestly office in his own person. One who sits to rule and yet is a priest. You see, that was forbidden in Israel. The kings and the priests were two separate lines. The kings from Judah, the priests from the tribe of Levi. The priests were not the civil leaders, and the civil leaders couldn't be priests. That's why Uzziah was struck with leprosy when he went into the temple as the king trying to play the part of a priest. But the day is coming when one who is called the branch will be the king and will be the priest and he will rebuild the temple of Jehovah. Who are these two standing by here? Who are these ones who supply the Holy Spirit symbolized by the oil of the two olive trees? Well, it's going to be one called the branch. It's going to be the very Son of God who gives the Holy Spirit in full abundance. See what a beautiful prophecy this is? What we learn if we look at the prophets in general is that the rebuilding of the temple for them pointed to the Messianic age. You look at Isaiah 44 and 45 this afternoon. And you'll read how Isaiah says when the temple is rebuilt it will be glory to the Gentiles and all the earth will be part of the kingdom of God. Malachi 3, when the Lord comes to his temple then a pure kingdom will be established in the earth. When the temple of God is rebuilt, it will be the day of the Messiah. And that day will be one of salvation to the Gentile nations. Isaiah 49, 5-6, Is it too small a thing that you should redeem the outcasts of Israel? No, you shall be a light to the nations even. It won't be enough that Israel has the temple. All nations will flow into the temple now. All nations will call him glorious. And Zechariah tells us that in the day in which the temple is complete, it will be completed not as they see it with the outward eyes, not by Zerubbabel and Joshua finally, but by the branch, by the Messiah himself. And what do we learn when we turn to the New Testament? Does any of this sound familiar to you? Is God building a house today? Well, he surely is. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says the church is the temple of God. 
founded upon Jesus Christ and the apostles. You think about Ephesians 5, how we are a spiritual house called out by God to be a holy place of His dwelling. We are the temple of God. Or 1 Peter chapter 2, which speaks of us as living stones built up to be a temple and house of God where He might dwell by the Spirit. The church is the temple of God and it's Jesus Christ, the branch, the prophet, priest, and king who has come now to build this house, to restore it, and to see to it that it's complete. We now live in the Messianic age where all the promises and the privileges spoken of by the prophets are being realized through the branch, the Messiah, the one who for the sake of his people is building up a house where all the nations can flow into it to be sanctified and know the prosperity of God. How can we apply then Zechariah's prophecy to us today and not just to the rebuilding of the temple many years ago? In the first place, because of the work of Jesus Christ, we have the living, full, abundant supply of the Holy Spirit. We have an abundant supply of the Spirit in order that we can become the light to the nations. Nothing can stop us because the Holy Spirit is what enlivens us and guides us and gives us strength to go on. No opposition can stop us. We can say to that mountain of opposition, be a plain, and it will be. You see, that prophecy was about the branch and about his spirit and about the building of his house. And you think anything's going to get in the way of the church of Jesus Christ being built up? You think anything's going to stop the march, the ongoing march of God building his kingdom and spreading it to earth's remotest ends? Nothing will get in the way. Indeed, Jesus said, if we have faith the size of a mustard seed, we'll say to the mountain, be removed into the sea, and it will move. No opposition will stop us. And so who are you, O mountain? Become a plain. And let's not uh, trust in programs and human devices and human strength to accomplish that. You know, we might think we have to get together and have fancier programs. We need a gospel blimp, maybe. We need all sorts of human wisdom to be pumped into this to make the program work. But God says, no, it won't come by money and it won't come by numbers and it won't come by human strength or wisdom. Not by power and not by might, but by my Spirit. You see, it's going to take place not through impressive programs, but through humble hearts where God truly works through His Spirit to bring people to know Him and to proclaim His glory to the nations. What else do we learn from this? We learn we shouldn't despise small things. You say, oh, well, big deal. Fifteen people in a living room somewhere. Yeah, well, now they're 66, you see. And after all, if you count past and present, it's over 90. In this one little small place, without a sign, without a yellow page ad, and it didn't come because they had tremendous, overpowering, charismatic leaders. And it didn't come because they had a lot of money and a lot of time and big programs and many people. No. Don't despise small things. You see, we're part of a program. In fact, the program is so big and so mighty that it probably sweeps us off our feet. We don't even realize. We're part of the plan of the ages. God is conquering the world through us. Sometimes we're looking the wrong way. We may be down in the mouth and looking backwards when God is very upbeat and looking ahead, but the fact is the march of the kingdom goes on. And we mustn't despise the day of small things. 
We mustn't despise the fact that we haven't filled every chair here this morning. The day will come when this auditorium will be full. We'll need a bigger place. Isaiah said, stretch out the tent stakes. We need a bigger place. The kingdom's growing. And it will continue to do so. Remember that the Christian church began with a very, very small group. Eleven men. After all, one of them had turned out to be a traitor. And it met incredible opposition. Opposition which uh, goes far beyond anything we know today. And yet the Pentecostal outpouring of God's Holy Spirit came and it made the early Christians a power that couldn't be overcome. A power to encourage them. A power to convert people. A power to enlighten them. A power to defeat all persecution. And Christ has given a great commission, not just to the early Christians, but to us. A great commission to disciple all the nations. And what Zechariah 4 says, it will be done. The house of God will be completed. Nothing will stop us. You will see the plumb line in the hand, not of Zerubbabel, but of the branch. The Messiah will complete his house and all nations will flow into it in that day. For you see, he has all power and authority in heaven and on earth and he's with his church to the end of the ages. And so his church in general and his church in every place, this church and this congregation along with all those who faithfully name the name of Christ will see the success of God's work not because they're wise and not because they're talented and not because they're powerful or rich but because of the Holy Spirit. Not by might, not by power but by my spirit, says Jehovah of hosts. What is the message for today here as we celebrate our fifth anniversary? Oh, I rebuke you if you have little faith. Don't despise the day of small beginnings. God is going to do a wondrous work, and he's going to do it here. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the encouragement, the exciting word, the confidence that we have through your mouthpiece, Zechariah the prophet. Oh, we thank you how he points us to our Savior, Jesus Christ, our true king and our true priest, the one who builds the true temple of God where the Holy Spirit dwells for all eternity. How we thank you that your son, Jesus Christ, is building up his kingdom, that he is conquering hearts and drawing people to himself, that he is showing us to stretch out the tent stakes and to enlarge our place of habitation because more and more are coming. How we thank you that this day, even of small beginnings that we have seen, is nothing. And though it may be despised by human eyes and those without faith, we do believe on the basis of your holy word that you are going to do a mighty work, that you are going to prosper the work in the midst of days, that you are going to see your kingdom grow. Indeed, the nations are going to fall before you, and you will conquer all so that the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Lord, we ask that you would prosper your work in this place. Lord, we ask that you would give us Orange County. Lord, we pray that you would give us a vision of conquering, to see hearts brought to Jesus Christ, to see lives transformed and nurtured in the word of God, to obey you, to go out with vocations that will glorify you, Indeed, to see your kingdom take over every area of life so that holiness through the Lord will be found even upon the horse's bells in every common pot. Oh, Father, give us that vision. Give us the confidence that even though our might may be small and our money limited, yet your almighty power through the Holy Spirit knows no limits. 
and therefore we shall not be stopped, and your kingdom shall conquer. Lord, give us Orange County, we pray. We do ask, Father, that you would give such confidence to brothers and sisters in Christ throughout the land and throughout the world that they too would be part of the winning side of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, that they would not be down in the mouth and discouraged, but they rather would take their resources and apply them faithfully, knowing that their labor is not in vain in the Lord. Lord, we thank you for this vision of victory and the confidence that it gives us. We give you all glory and praise because of it. In Jesus' name, amen.